This week's episode is supported by Lumi. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free, so you can feel confident using it on even your most sensitive skin. And it's clinically proven to control odor anywhere on the body for 72 hours. And also by Damsel in Defense. Whether you're purchasing products or sharing the mission with your community, your support is making a difference. You can click the links in the show notes to find out more about these amazing supporters. How did it come about that we are doing an episode on drilling holes into the human skull? Because enough people thought that it was a brilliant idea that it became a topic that just wouldn't go away. For centuries. And here we are. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. We've all heard people say things like, you need that, insert item that said person absolutely does not need, like you need another hole in the head. But some people decide they do need the said item and get it anyway, and sadly, there are those who feel they need another hole in the head as well. However, it is not meant to be an elective surgery. It's called trepanation. Its literal meaning is to bore a hole. And it turns out, this is a thing that people have been doing for a very long, long time. I believe I read that the first discovery of the skull with a hole bored into it was dated back to the Neolithic period, found in Peru. Trepanation was practiced at different times in nearly every European country, Egypt, and other parts of Africa, the Polynesian Islands, North America, South America, Asia, and the Middle East. Here in the States, we have seen ancient examples from New Mexico, most likely from the Pueblo Indian origins, in Arkansas, Illinois, and Michigan, coming from the mound-building tribes. Not that many, mind you, but we still have our few. But the examples from America don't really start rolling in until later. These days, it has a new name. We now call it a craniotomy. Same principles, more sterile and controlled environment with fancy tools and beeping computers. It's still a procedure that cuts a section of the skull, most times to get access to the brain to do an additional surgery. But it is also used in cases where the brain is swelling beyond capacity and if some breathing room isn't established ASAP, brain damage may occur. An example of this was done in 2009 when a doctor had to use a drill to save a child's life in Melbourne, Australia. The child had fallen from his bike and was suffering from brain inflammation. The quick-thinking doctor, mind you, I said, doctor, used a regular drill that he borrowed from the maintenance closet to bore a hole in the 12-year-old's skull, releasing the pressure, allowing blood flow, and saving his life. These days, following the completion of a craniotomy, the disc of bone that was removed is replaced again and fused back together with the rest of the skull. When, in the olden days, it would be used as a piece of jewelry, um, in healing rituals, or ground up and put into the soup to feed back to the patient. 
I mean, the opportunities are endless. Some cultures in Russian covered the gaping hole with layers of gold. These days, they also have access to all kinds of computers and imagery to aid in the precise surgical practices. Back then, they were just kind of winging it. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but in many cases, we really don't know what they had in mind when they thought, hey, I bet if we carved out a chunk of bone that protects the ball of the slimy, squishy stuff, it might help. Hold still. Let me get my sharp rock. I got this. In fact, in my research, I've learned that it may not have been as random as one might think. According to the real research professionals, they share that they've discovered four different methods of performing a trepanation. Grooving, scraping, drilling, and cutting. I find myself saying no to all of them, especially without any kind of pain block or antiseptic. They would literally chip away at the spongy bone between the harder inner and outer layers of the skull to reach the brain. All the methods were pretty self-explanatory. The only thing I could elaborate on is the drilling does the circular motion and the cutting chops out the four sides of the square and then taps it until it's removed, giving the option of making the hole as large as needed. With the other methods, you just have to keep sawing or scraping or shaving away at the bone until you achieve the results you're looking for. Or, if you want to get fancy, some have been found that indicate cutting a series of small holes, then breaking the narrow bones between the spheres. Probably, I would imagine, the most painful to their poor patient. This brings us back to the question of why. Why would you let someone bore a hole in your head? And you know this wasn't a five-minute thing, especially if someone is coming at you with an oval-shaped stone. It's going to be a minute. I thought I'd start with the most obvious. Wounds. When you go back and look at the lifestyles of the earlier tribes, we do know that their forms of warfare consisted of bludgeoning their opponent with clubs, sticks, rocks, and other heavy weapons. These types of weapons usually made the strike zone the head with a downward swinging motion or the midsection with a side swinging motion. It's easy to understand then that the healers would attempt to stop the life-giving fluid and keep it in the body and to investigate where the leak is coming from. From there, I can understand how they would peel back the skin and hair and remove the broken pieces of bone from the wound in order for it to heal. It's pretty amazing that by reading the bones, they show that they had many who lived for quite some time following the procedure because the wound showed signs of healing. So we can technically say that it worked. But as time progressed and weapons became more sophisticated, meaning that it wasn't always hand-to-hand combat, the wounds changed, and trepanation did decrease, but not disappear. When weapons changed, so did the wounds. The Native Americans, for example, didn't have many skulls showing trepanation because they figured out the weapons of spears and arrows and knives even before the introduction of metals, so their wounds were more likely to be found in the chest and torso areas. But then we developed bullets, and cannonballs, which created flying objects and shrapnel, and we were back to massive head wounds again. Humans are vicious, but equally eager to help one another from pain and suffering. So, warfare makes trepanation a (laughs) no-brainer. No-brainer? See what I did there? (sighs) 
When I started looking into other reasons why they might bore holes into skulls without an obvious need, the results were interesting and also inconclusive. When physical trauma is absent, disease appears to be a likely factor behind the practice of trepanation. However, it is not ruled out that religious or ritualistic ceremonies may also be the reason for those without obvious reasons to try boring a hole into someone's head. Thanks to Laura Frame, who decided to do her paper on trepanation for her Masters of Arts and Anthropology, she did a lot of the legwork for me. She discovered that the top reasons for wanting to dig a piece of skull out of someone's head was most likely found in the other bones of the skeletons. So diseases that could read from the bones help professionals to take a sneak peek into why they believed trepanation might be an option. Disease doesn't just attack our fleshy and organy body parts, but many times, especially if it's been affecting the person for a long period of time, the evidence of it will show up in the bones. Sometimes topically showing shadows and indentations where organs and tissues slowly dissolved into the bones. There could be a deficiency, staining, or the presence of additional clues that were absorbed by the bones. Dietary deficiencies such as scurvy, which can be an indication from clues such as absence of teeth, bony structures around the eye sockets, and bony lesions and defects in the frontal lobe, and sometimes indications of respiration of the lungs. In all cases where the skulls that were found and believed that scurvy was the culprit, it also showed the trepanation did not work and the patient died soon after. Hydrocephaly, otherwise known as water on the brain, these remains indicate a misshapen, elongated skull. It is usually caused by the abnormal buildup of the cerebrospinal fluid in the ventricles of the brain. In this case, the trepanation would have been used to release the pressure caused by the fluid buildup that was most likely causing brain damage. They found such an example of a skull in Rome, Italy, of a child around the age of five. The skull shows that a hole was bored into the child's skull, but I couldn't find what the results were from doing the procedure. Epilepsy was also researched as a cause for the procedure. Although not much evidence is found within the remains of the bones for such a thing as epilepsy, but thanks in part to doctors later in our timeline who did keep notes, we find that trepanation was a choice the healers of the time chose to implement which in turn gives the belief that it must have been handed down or taught to our would-be physicians for treatment of seizures. So researchers today don't rule out more cases of the unknown uses of trepanation may be epilepsy or seizures. In 1879, for example, a patient who was described as a 14-year-old girl was that she suffered from traumatic seizures. Today, we can look back and diagnose, in pencil, that this might have been epilepsy. After witnessing an episode, she was hospitalized. The child was comatose and not responding to treatment. The doctor performed a trepanation, and within two days, she was talking, and by the end of the week, she was up and walking. This, I might mention, is post-Civil War. During the Civil War battles, Trepanation increased due to the bullet wounds and hand-to-hand combat and the field hospitals where they might not have had a lot of time to decide what or how to best attend the head wound. And just the fact that it was still being practiced leads us to believe that 
The doctors of the time felt that it could still help their patients. In fact, give me just a second and I'll grab a couple examples from the actual Civil War patients who underwent the trepanation procedure. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. Can I just be real a second? I live full-time, on the road, in a camper. And because I choose this life, I do need to take extra care when it comes to my safety. I would hate to have to give up my dreams that I've worked so hard to reach because I didn't take these few extra steps. And thanks to Damsel and Defense, they made it easy for me to take extra precautions for my own personal safety. I started purchasing Damsel and Defense products and I love the way they are made. They're not bulky or hard to use, and they really have my safety in mind. They didn't break the bank either. And bonus, they come in all kinds of colors, styles, and even some sparkle. Thanks to them, I am free to roam about this great country and feel safe knowing that I have some sort of safety device within arm's reach or on my person. If you do not have at least one method of self-protection with you or around you, I urge you to check out our exclusive page, www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones and take responsibility for your safety so you can enjoy life. I am proud to have them in the Bag of Bones family and you'll love them too. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Private James Rogers of the 4th Ohio Artillery was struck on the head by a stone on May 3, 1865, receiving a depressed fracture of the skull. By the time he was admitted to the hospital at New Creek, Virginia on May 7th, he had slipped into a coma. On May 9th, they decided to perform a trepanation. So he was, quote, placed under the influence of ether and Assistant Surgeon S.M. Finley of the 22nd Pennsylvania Cavalry applied the trephine and elevated the depressed bone, end quote. Following the procedure, Private Rogers reacted well, but it wasn't long before, quote, erysipelas supervened, which means a bacterial infection occurred that showed up by raised red splotches on the face and or legs, but was successfully combated by chloride of iron. The patient improved rapidly, the wound was cicatrized, which means was scarred over, and he returned to duty well on the 29th of 1865. By the time the Civil War came along, there is enough evidence to assume that trepanation was performed regularly. Specific tools had been created to complete it, making precise, uniform, circular holes. Two types of saws were most commonly used one that would sit on top of the head with a boring drill in it, the center would create a hole in the rounded top of the head, functioning something like the early ice cream makers, only with a sharp point. Or then there was the handheld option, and that resembles, practically is, the first form of a drill, but with a round blade that removes a perfect circle with the handle in the middle. There are some photos if you'd like to see examples at www.ragtagnetwork.com forward slash bag of bones. The scalp over the skull is first sliced with a scalpel, a flap laid back, and the whole board or saw cut by twisting motion of the trephine. 
Surgeon Alexander T. Watson records the case about Private Joseph Burns. He was 23 years old when he was struck on the head at 8 o'clock p.m. Friday, 22, 1864 by a shrug shot. Side note, now I have looked for what exactly a shrug shot is in the terms of Civil War injuries, as I'm pretty sure it has absolutely nothing to do with Michael Jordan, so if any of our Civil War buffs could enlighten me, I would love that. But this shrug shot produced a fracture of the skull extending from the vertex, which is the crown of the head, to the left orbit, which is his eye. Private Burns was taken to Clay Hospital at Louisville, Kentucky on the evening of the accident with, quote, symptoms of grave compression on the brain, end quote. Through the night and the next morning, he had frequent convulsions. On the 23rd of February, quote, the acting assistant surgeon, John E. Crow, applied the trephine and elevated the depressed bone. The patient had previously been comatose or convulsed every five or ten minutes, but in ten minutes after the operation, he became conscious and spoke rationally, stating the circumstances attending his injury and his military history. In a few hours, however, the convulsive paroxysms returned and continued through the night. The patient died on the succeeding day, February 24, 1864. The average cranial surgery mortality rate during the Civil War was about 46% to 56%, and once they left the care of the physician, it is unknown how they managed or if they even survived. Here's a colorful example that was written by an observer. It's May 1863 and a nameless private from the 14th Tennessee Confederate Infantry is brought in. It's said that he is small in stature, but fairly muscular. He was taken to the infirmary because several days prior he had, quote, received in a quarrel a wound on the anterior portion of the parietal bone from a stone held in the clenched fist of his adversary. The report says that he was, quote, stunned by the blow, end quote. However, fearing repercussions, he did not report for sick call. Finally, when erysipelas, a bacterial infection, forced him to see a physician, he was treated just for that. But then, a few weeks later, he would suffer from weekly epileptic paroxysms, which are not just the body spasms we attach to the epileptic. These are sometimes uh, crying jags or anger outbursts that are normally uncharacteristic of the person. He was discharged from the military and went home to Springfield, Tennessee. There, the situation did not improve, and the convulsions increased both in frequency and in violence until he was sent to nearby Nashville to be treated by Dr. W.T. Briggs. The 22-year-old's general health was, quote, poor, the countenance pale, the bowels torpid, which means slow and inactive, the pulse quick and irritable. A depression of the skull corresponded with the cicatrix of the original wound. There was no pain about the cicatrix, but a sense of pressure on the whole side of the head. End quote. After about ten days of observation, Dr. Briggs removed a disc of bone from the crown with a very large trephine. The inner surface of the disc presented a sharp angle at the union of the edges of the depressed inner table. The procedure was considered a success, and he was sent home with the instructions to, quote, rest quietly in bed, but he felt so much better that he would not heed the doctor's advice. I know, this is the part where you think I'm going to tell you that since he didn't listen to the doctor, 
he went home and the wound got infected and he died. Well, that is not what happened. After 10 days, there were no more spasms or pain. So he re-enlisted in the Confederate Army. He was accepted and placed in the Partisan Rangers. While performing his duties, he was captured and sentenced to hang. But he escaped. He went on to fulfill his duties with no more reoccurrence of seizures. But again, once he separated from the military, we have no idea what happened to him. But after all that, I'd consider that trepanation a success. And sometimes the soldiers, not due to bullet wounds at all, suffered great injury. Private Sumner H. Needham of the 6th Massachusetts Militia was attacked on April 19, 1861 by insurgents in Baltimore, Maryland. He was struck on the forehead with a brick, which fractured the frontal bone. Quote, His wound was examined by Dr. William A. Hammond, who found symptoms of compression of the brain demanding the application of the trephine. The operation was immediately performed, but the symptoms were not relieved, and the patient died in a few hours. End quote. Sadly, Mr. Needham, a resident of Lawrence, Massachusetts, was one of the earliest victims of the Civil War. So, now following the obvious and the not-so-obvious, I still think it's interesting to see the religious side of trepanation. It's interesting to see, as a person from today's access to information and overview, to be able to look back and see what they thought were evil spirits turned out to be just, and I use that word lightly, headaches. Several archaeologists emphasized the role of religion, suggesting that trepanation might have been performed to allow the exit or entrance of spirits believed to cause illness. In ancient times, holes were drilled into a person who was behaving in what was considered an abnormal way to let out what people believed were evil spirits. In 1914, we have a written documentation of a patient it doesn't specify male or female or the age that was, quote, suffering from hysterics and severe pain in the head, end quote. The patient came to the doctor, believed that they were possessed by a demon. The operation was performed without anesthetic, but the patient did not complain of feeling any pain, which was another obvious clue that it was possession. Again, this is unfortunately where the story ends. So, now we do know that it was used as treatment for demonic or supernatural cures, with the rules of what those symptoms might be based on the location and the era, but we don't know how the patient fared after the trepanation. Some remains even have multiple holes bored out of the skulls, indicating that the procedure had been done more than once. The holes showed different levels of healing. So it leads them to believe that this form of treatment may have been used for things that they might believe as evil. Headaches, migraines, mastoiditis, schizophrenia, scurvy, ear infections, or any other behaviors we suffer from today that we can just head on over to the Walgreens and self-medicate. No holes required. But referring to the earlier issue of not being able to read the bones to determine why they felt a trepanation was the best call to action, we are still left in the dark as to their traditions. And one final note. In 1936, in a very specific section of ancient United States tribes, skulls were found with a set of two bored holes in the skull done post-mortem. The professionals believe that these were put there to hang the body upright from their skulls. 
the two holes serving as a place to, uh, uh, run the rope through. Ew. Who knows what or why after that? It's funny to me that the ancients felt the need to draw on the walls to communicate almost every detail of their lives, but there are no mentions or artwork of boring a hole into someone's head. I'm disappointed in you, Egypt. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Quote, I used a hand trepan initially, but that wasn't proving to be terribly successful. Then there was a problem with the people who owned the property we were staying in, so we decided we just had to leave it. I wrapped my head up in a towel and we got out of there. A couple days later, we had another go. We abandoned the hand trepan and got an electric drill instead. I injected myself with a local anesthetic and then slashed a big T-shaped incision in my scalp right down to the bone. I sat there in the bathroom feeling quite relaxed, and they started with the drill. It didn't take that long at all, probably about 20 minutes, end quote. That's Heather Perry, as she told the story of her home trepanning experience in 2008. Hang on, listen to this. Quote, eventually, I could feel a lot of fluid moving around. Apparently, there was a bit too much fluid shifting around because they'd gone a little bit too far and I was leaking some through the hole. But this wasn't especially dangerous, as there are three layers of meninges before you get to the brain. End quote. A little backstory, apparently. In the 60s, when people were experimenting with mind-altering drugs like LSD and acid, there rose a school of thought that if you cut a hole in your head, it gives your blood and other fluids more room to flow so you are not as stressed out. Yeah, I'll just let that sink in for a second. One of the biggest advocates for the home method of trepanning was Amanda Fielding. She's the director of the Beckley Foundation, which is an organization that researches consciousness. Her work spans the entire mind-altering spectrum from cannabis and LSD to Buddhist meditation and the physiological effects of trepanation. In the early 1970s, Amanda trepanned herself when she couldn't find a doctor to do it for her and has since become somewhat of an authority on the practice. She had heard of some experimentation on the process and after effect of trepanation and when she saw firsthand the results of some that she knew personally, Amanda decided to find out for herself. She says, quote, I had a friend who did it and I noticed a definite change in him that was very subtle a mellowing, a lessening of the neurotic behavior that we all have. I knew him exceptionally well and did notice a difference. 
Later, another friend had it done who had chronic headaches that caused him to lose a day or two a week, but he hadn't had those headaches for the last 30 years since he was trepanned. I started to seek out a doctor who would trepan me. After four years of unsuccessful searching, I decided to do it myself. End quote. I know you want to know how she felt following the procedure, and she says, quote, I described it at the time as feeling like the tide coming in. There was a feeling of rising slowly and gently to levels that felt good, very subtle. One very clear thing I noticed was the change in the dream pattern. My dreams became much less anxious. That was quite noticeable. Could all of that be described as a placebo? There is, of course, that possibility, and I'm very conscious of that. I have to say I noticed enough of a change to keep me interested. End quote. As for Heather's experience, she says, quote, Something definitely happened after the operation. There was a shifting around of fluids, and I felt an intense sense of peace and relaxation. It was a little bit trippy in a nice, shiny sort of way. If I were to compare it to drugs, it would be like acid mixed with some kind of opiate. It certainly seemed to help with mental clarity and overall well-being, and I remember that feeling lasting for quite a while. Afterwards, I reduced my dose of antidepressants for a while, but I don't think it's long-lasting because it's probably healed over. I don't know whether that's because I needed a bigger hole, end quote. Hmm, yeah, that nice, shiny sort of way. <laughs> I don't care how shiny it was, I don't think I could put a drill to the back of my head and pull the trigger. In order for Amanda to explain why she feels the reason trepanation works, she uses the example of a newborn baby. She says, quote, When a baby is born, the top of the skull is very soft and flexible. First, the fontanelle, which is the soft area, the top of the skull, it closes. Then the skull bones close, which inhibits the full pulsation of the heartbeat. So it is denied its full expression in the brain, so to speak. That loss of pulse pressure results in a change of ratio between the two fluids in the brain, blood and cerebral spinal fluid. It is the blood that feeds the brain cells with what they need, such as glucose and oxygen. The cerebral spinal fluid removes some of the toxic molecules. She continues by explaining that trepanation restores the full pulse pressure of the heartbeat. She says that, quote, the capillaries slightly blow up and squeeze out of an equal amount of cerebral spinal fluid. When the circulation becomes sluggish, when not enough cerebral spinal fluid is being pumped into the brain, stagnant pools can build up and this can contribute to the onset of diseases such as dementia and Alzheimer's. Could the cure for Alzheimer's be as simple as that? Well, a Russian neurophysicist has been studying those who have had trepanation done for whatever reason. He found that their cranial compliance was around 20% higher than the average for their age. He measured the hole and discovered that the blood flow was increased more per heartbeat. He says that means trepanation might be an effective treatment for Alzheimer's and might even be a help for those whose mental functions have started to decline. Lawrence Watkins, a consultant neurosurgeon at the Institute of Neurology, London, spoke in an interview in 2000 and stated, quote, There are lots of good reasons for making a hole in someone's head, and in a neurosurgeon's hands, it's not a risky procedure, but for someone doing it themselves, the risks are huge, end quote. 
He believes that there are no benefits, no matter what the websites claim, from the DIY trepanning. He says, quote, In desperation, particularly if encouraged by one of these groups that seem to be promoting it, they have a go themselves. End quote. Amanda would probably fit into this category. Not that she was trying to create a movement, but she did do her homework. She believed that it was something she wanted to do, but no one would do it for her. So... She did it herself. She talked openly of her procedure, even filming as part of her artistic point of view. She would say, quote, It was effective. After I'd performed the procedure, I wrapped my head with a scarf, had a stake to replace the iron from the lost blood, and went to a party. It doesn't set you back at all. It doesn't incapacitate you. It's just a half-hour operation. End quote. Dr. Michael Sisti, a neurosurgeon at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, is not only against the at-home drilling method, but also not a fan of cutting into the protective layers of the skull. In fact, he told 2020 that, quote, Drilling a hole in the skull will not improve one's lifestyle. It's an assault. It's not a procedure. It's really a form of self-mutilation, end quote. Sisti also said none of his patients have ever, after thousands of procedures that involve entering the skull, told him that they felt rejuvenated after brain surgery. Mrs. Fielding would argue with that. While it's clear that she did her research into the historical aspects of trepanation, she would say, quote, I think there is a wider variety of uses than archaeologists give ancient man credit for, end quote. And I guess that's fair since we don't have that much to go on. And Ms. Perry would also argue with Sisti's opinion, saying, quote, I felt the effects immediately. I generally feel better and there is more mental clarity, end quote. After researching her options for some time, Heather Perry was 29 when she came to America to perform the treatment. She reached out to the trepanation guru, Peter Halverson who was then, and is apparently now, very popular in the area of the effects of boring little holes into one's head. Peter Halverson was a survivor of a self-trepanation when he was 27. His biggest takeaway of the effects of his third eye, he says, quote, I've had the ability to concentrate and stay in focus with the added benefit of feeling good all the while. Most outstanding is an improved ability to listen, end quote. He was present at the time of Heather's trepanation. I believe she started it, but was unable to complete it, so Peter took over. Heather's family reached out to the FBI to try and stop the whole thing from happening, but were able to reach out to the local police in Utah to uphold a bit of the law. Heather recalls, The media went mad. Apparently, back in Utah where I was trepanned, They stared, thinking that we had started up a cult, and we were showing films in the local schools warning kids about it. It was just totally hysterical reaction from everybody, especially the media. It completely misportrayed the whole thing, trying to make Pete look like some kind of cult leader or something. In fact, I had contacted him and dragged him into this unnecessary mess that he didn't need. Afterwards, he got arrested for practicing medicine without a license, and it cost him lots of lawyer fees. But then, he did encourage the publicity, end quote. Halverson believes that trepanation is a, quote, trip worth taking, end quote, although he and Fielder do not endorse the do-it-yourself method. 
He is a big believer of spreading the word to try and encourage some form of patent-requested outpatient procedure for the trepanation. He adds, quote, To fully understand this philosophy of consciousness expansion and to have not allowed myself to use it to my own advantage would be like having a gold mine in my backyard and allowing myself to be thrown off my own property for not paying the taxes, he says. Amanda Fielding eventually had a second hole bored into her head, this time on the right side. The first time was in the base of her skull and she did it with an electric drill with a foot pedal. She taped her glasses to her face so blood wouldn't get in her eyes, held up a mirror, and drilled down about a half an inch. And she believed that the hole has grown back together, so she wanted to refresh the results. This time, Fielding had a doctor in Mexico City drill another, larger hole. And to ensure it wouldn't grow over, she had a piece of wax inserted into the wound to inhibit the growth of bone. She said that the results were similar to the first time and that she is pleased. In between the trepanning and the craniotomy, let us not forget the leucotomy, which was simplified by the lobotomy. That's a lot of otomies for cutting into the skull and actually messing with the brain. If you want to know the origin story of the lobotomy that turned into the circus show of the orbital lobotomy, may I suggest tuning in to episode 21. You won't be disappointed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. Our anniversary is coming up and we've decided to dedicate the first few episodes of the new season to listener requests. So if you have a particular topic or subject matter that you'd like to hear more about, please reach out through my website, www.elizabethbougeret.com. You still have another week or so to submit your request, but don't wait. That's www.elizabethbougeret.com. Lots of milestones to celebrate. One whole year, well over 5,000 downloads, 52 episodes, we are moving right along. And I thank you for being a part of each and every milestone for Bag of Bones. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.